Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Armin Smelsenbach was a third-generation Nazarene missionary to Africa. Whenever he and his father Elmer would speak, the audiences would be captivated by their stories and the style of speaking. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon preached at God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio, many years ago. He titles it, His Name is Jesus. always a privilege and a joy for me to visit the campus here and revive the memories, go back a long ways, 100 years now in my family. Reading to you this promise which I've taken for myself, you're welcome to do the same. It's found in Isaiah, the 43rd chapter, these words, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And believe me, friends, there's going to be fire. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. My telephone rang in my office in Nairobi, Kenya. I picked it up, and on the other end of the line was a secret weapon of mine. His name was Stephen. Idi Amin had been toppled in Uganda, and suddenly the country was opening a little bit, and I had sent Stephen deep into the middle of Africa to feel out the situation in Uganda to see if we could not start mission work in that country. For just a brief few seconds, Stephen's voice came crackling across 800 miles of antiquated African telephone wire. Brother Harmon! Brother Harmon! It's great! Everything look click! No hope of reestablishing communication. I didn't know in what government office in Uganda Stephen had found a telephone that actually worked. I went over and picked up my briefcase, closed the office and locked it, grabbed my little bag and headed out to Jomo Kenyatta Airport outside of Nairobi. I booked passage on the next plane to Uganda with what we lovingly call Air Maybe. 
There maybe is an ancient Boeing 707. No headliner in it. You can see the wiring taped up with masking tape from bulkhead to bulkhead, the full length of the plane. The windows were opaque and cracked. You could hear the wind whistling outside. No seat cushions on the frames of the chairs. The seat cushions were prized furniture in many of the villages around Nairobi there. No safety belts. They were holding up the pants of the vendors in the marketplace. <laughs> Climbed on board. It was one of those days in which there was standing room only. Piled into the... The fella next to me had a cardboard carton with three little pigs in it. Half of the people standing, everybody braced against anything they could hold on to. Eventually, they managed to get both in, uh, all four engines firing at the same time. Clouds of black smoke smelled a lot like kerosene to me. We started to taxi out to the main runway. And those tires with their bald patches here and there, you could hear the ripple as the canvas would hit the tarmac. We turned on the main runway and lined up with the horizon. Nairobi is 6,000 feet high, as high as Denver, one mile, and it takes forever to get into the air. Down that runway we went, my eyes closed. I finally opened one and saw three metal-cutting screws wiggling their way down the channel path. I reached down and got, you never know when you're going to need metal-cutting screws in Africa. <laughs> Put them into my pocket. Everything was moving. The plane tilted, and we started up. We staggered slowly into the air. We got up about 150 feet, and the plane leveled off slightly, and the voice of the pilot came frantically over the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot retract the landing gear. I haven't been able to for two years now. <laughs> We're just going to fly low and slow all the way to Uganda. We leveled off about a thousand feet above the terrain and thundered across the middle of Africa out across Lake Victoria. We got out there out of sight of land in Lake Victoria, hit severe turbulence. The plane bounced a couple times, thudded down about 50 feet and, and came to a, a, a jarring bump and then took off again. And ahead of me, every Islamic was on his feet. They threw their prayer shawls on the floor all of them on their hands and knees, hoping that at least one of them would be facing Mecca. <laughs> They'd have been there yet, except the three little pigs escaped from the box next to me and went ricocheting up the aisle, squealing at the... Every one of those fellas was up on the top of the chair frames, hanging on to the rack above their heads, yelling to get the pigs out of the... You haven't lived yet <laughs> till you've had tea served you on Air Baby. She rolled out a live charcoal burner, fanned it into flame, put a pot of tea on to cook, 
One mug for everybody, I passed. <laughs> and we reached the far side of Lake Victoria. We leveled off with the runway at a place called Entebbe. We touched down and taxied up to the main terminal building. Entebbe was just as the Israelis had left it when they rescued the hostages from Flight 800's TWA. The huge plate glass windows to the terminal were stitched with long rows of heavy 50 caliber machine gun fire. The building had burned out on the inside, no electricity, everything charred and smoke filled. We climbed off the plane and headed in, nobody in the terminal building. We could see daylight on the far side over there. We headed for that past mounds of black burned out material. We reached the door and pushed it open. Under a mango tree was a little table with two men, customs and immigration. And behind them was a third man. Bouncing up and down was Stephen. I knew you'd be on this plane, he said. I knew you'd grab the first plane into Uganda. They stamped my passport upside down, and we headed for you. He, Stephen had managed to get a taxi to come from the capital uh, out to the airport at Entebbe, and we climbed into this taxi and headed back towards the capital, Kampala, the city of Kampala. The entire landscape had been mowed with a giant scythe. All the coconut palms were down crisscross like toothpicks on the road. The sugarcane plantations had been mowed flat and burned out. There were overturned field personnel carriers. There were tanks with the tread shot off and blasted off by landmines. In Idi Amin's retreat to the airport, he had left a scorched earth policy behind him. We finally reached the capital, Kampala, about 15 miles from the airport, 20 miles. Unlike African cities from one side of Africa to the other, there was almost total silence in this city. People scurrying quietly from one place to another. So unlike Africa, where people call to each other across the street, laugh and talk, and the markets are alive, we disembarked and we headed for the center of the city on foot. In the center of the city was a tall building about 15 stories high, Italian marble, pockmarked with rocket fire and blast. Every window, it had had, it at one time had smoke glass windows. Every window had been shot out. It was now the headquarters of the interim government that had formed in the wake of Idi Amin and Obote being deposed in Uganda. Anything of significance that happened in this country had to happen in this building. There were thousands of people crowded into it, into the entranceways. No lights, no electricity in the entire country, no running water. It would take a long time, several years, before water would be restored. We pushed our way into the entrance and we started up the stairwell, people pushing their way down. We crowded our way upward. 
We climbed to the 12th or 13th floor. I don't remember which. There were still just wall-to-wall people everywhere. Way at the end of the hallway, we could see sunlight from the window, and we started towards it. The last door on the right had a, a bronze plaque on it that said, Legal Advisor to the Government of Uganda. Stephen reached up and was just about to knock when I grabbed his hand. I said, Stephen, are we in the right place? He said, Missionary, an angel must have brought me here yesterday. You bet this is the right place. I released his hand and he knocked. A distinguished British accent English voice responded from behind the door. Enter, gentlemen, enter, please. We pushed open the door. A fine young Ugandan gentleman sat behind a huge leather-topped desk right across the room from us. He was dressed in a black pinstripe suit, a bow tie, immaculately dressed. Otherwise, there was a two-foot square piece of tattered carpet on the floor and a calendar hanging from a nail off-center in the wall. No cabinets, two rickety chairs were leaned against the wall. A broad smile swept across the young man's face. He came to his feet. Ah, Stephen, he said. I see you were successful in reaching your superintendent. Come in, come in, gentlemen. We pushed our way into the room. He walked over and shut the door, gave us each a rickety chair, turned to me, and he said, Reverend Harmon, did Stephen tell you who I am? And I said, no, no. No, I've been climbing stairs ever since I got to Uganda. We haven't visited. He pushed a little rickety chair under me and I sat down heavily. He paced up and down. He said, Reverend Harmon, years ago, on the western side of Uganda, in the rainforest of the Congo River Basin, there was a little mud school, one room. We had from grade one through grade seven crowded into that room. The ages of the students were from six years old to 26. We sat on the floor. There were no benches. We had no blackboard. We had no books. We had no pencils or pens. We had one teacher, and our teacher only owned one textbook. It was an old, weathered and worn English King James version of the Bible. Everything of significance that I learned, I learned out of that textbook book missionary. Every day at noon, the teacher would gather us all as close as he could around him. And very carefully, he would take his handkerchief and he would lay it out on the, on the floor. We all sat on the floor. Lay it out on the floor. Then he would take his Bible and he would open it and he would carefully lay it on top of the handkerchief. And I was a star pupil missionary, so I had the privileged position of being seated right in front of the teacher. And all of us would lean forward to watch. And with his finger, he would trace each word and he would sound it out to us. That's how I learned English. Unfortunately, 
When I got to Cambridge, I discovered I was the only one who could read English upside down. <laughs> and from the top left-hand corner to the bottom right. Out of the north came Idi Amin. Determined to wipe out every Christian in Uganda. He turned his henchmen loose with pickaxe handles. And they beat to death 800,000 people in Uganda. Blood flowed like water. We fled, missionary. We fled for our lives. I found myself in the ivy-covered halls of Cambridge with a degree in international law and nowhere to practice. For eight years, I stayed at Cambridge and taught international law. And then the other day, Idi Amin was overthrown by this new young president, Museveni. And my telephone rang about a little over a week ago in Europe. And it was the new young president of Uganda. And he said, come home. Come back to Uganda. Help us reconstruct the country. And I flew back this last week. And yesterday, we struggled up the steps with my big desk from Cambridge. We swept out the broken glass. I was in the hallway last thing in the afternoon, nailing up my little sign on the door. People bumping me as they crowded past. And suddenly somebody reached up and slapped me on the shoulder and called me by my boyhood name. Nobody knows my boyhood name. I turned around missionary, I thought I was looking at an angel. It was my school teacher from way back there in the rainforest. We thought he was dead. We thought he had been killed in the, the murders that had taken place. Missionary, Stephen was my school teacher. He tells me that you're wanting to enter this country, that you need a government registration in order to enter this country legally and bring missionaries in and own property and operate bank accounts. I will do everything in my power to help you get a registration in the country of Uganda. In fact, I'll open a portfolio right now, and uh, as soon as you get back to Nairobi, missionary, I need some documents. The first thing that I need is your constitution. I flipped my briefcase up onto his desk. I popped it open. I dug out a great big sheath of yellowed papers with great big red seals and ribbons on them. It was a copy of the handwritten constitution written back in 1890 in Los Angeles and signed by the bishop that founded the church. I handed it to him. Wonderful, he said. Historic significance. 
This shows you've been around a while. This is great. He stuffed it into the portfolio. I, I need a couple other things, though. I need your papers of incorporation back into the briefcase. Out came another big bunch of yellowed papers with seals and stamps on them. It was a copy of the 1926 incorporation of the mission organization that I was with and stamped and signed by the Secretary of State of the United States of America. And I handed it to him. Wonderful, he said. This covers the legal side of it. How about a historical statement? I pulled one out of my briefcase. This is just the kind of stuff I carry all day long in my briefcase. Document after document, every single thing that he needed, I handed to him. I'll get right on to it, missionary. It should take me about, uh, about two years to get it for you. I said, two years? Oh, yeah, normally takes four years. I think I can speed it up a little bit. I said, I don't have two years. Tomorrow, Saturday, Stephen and I are preaching downtown in the open marketplace in the middle of the city, and we're launching the church. Oh, no, he said. No, you can't do that. You're just going to have to put your plans on ice for a while. I said, ice, ice. I don't deal in ice. I don't serve a Lord and a God who deals in ice. He deals in fire. Amen. Oh, well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Come back Monday and tell me what happens. <laughs> Monday morning at the crack of dawn, I walked into his office. The man was there. He was beside himself. He said, Brother Harmon, you will never guess what happened this weekend. Friday afternoon after you left, I kept thinking there's got to be a way to speed this registration business up. And then I had a brainwave. Great, I'll have a barbecue Saturday at my house, Saturday evening. I'll invite a, a dozen or so of those sharp young guys from the, from the uh, Ministry of Justice. One of them is bound to have a good idea and we're off and running. I sent word to the ministry over there to have a dozen or so of those young guys come by my house for a barbecue. You know what they did? Without touching base with me, they invited all the members of parliament to come to a barbecue. I had 147 people at my house Saturday. They cleaned me out. They ate every chicken, every goat that I owned. He said, about nine o'clock, my sleeves rolled up. I was out there barbecuing the last goat that I had, and they were munching their way through my flock when suddenly it dawned on me why they were there. And I turned to the, to the minister beside me, and I said, sir, I've got a, a request. I've got a mission organization that wants registration in this country. They're good people. I've looked at their documentation. Everything's fine. And, and he said, he laid down that big bunch of ribs, wiped his hands. He said, where's their papers? I had them right there in the briefcase. I handed them to him. The more he read, the more excited he got. He said, this is great theology. This is exactly what I believe. 
This is how it should be. We need more. You know, if we'd have had more of these kind of people in our country, we never would have had a problem with Idi Amin. Whipped out his pen, signed the recommendation for your registration. Then he turned around and he called for the Minister of Defense. He laid down his rack of ribs, came over there, took those documents, looked at them and started to read, and he whipped out his pen and he signed the recommend, and he called the Minister of Education. He came over there and picked up those papers and read, and he signed them. And he called the Minister of Health, and he called the Minister of Social Affairs, and he called the Minister, and down the line it started to go. And just before midnight, it crossed the lap of the top men in the government, and they signed it. And at 6 a.m. this morning, Monday, I was at the Justice Department. I woke up a secretary. They've been over there typing ever since. In fact, he said, I've been expecting somebody pretty quick. Right then, there was a knock on the door, and in walked a runner from the Justice Department. In his hand, the signed, certified, sealed registration of the mission organization that I was with. We had it. It had taken the Lord exactly 48 hours to do four years' worth of work. Boy, I'll tell you, Stephen was bouncing. I could hardly hang on to him. We got to the door, and Stephen grabbed my, my coat and turned me around. He said, Brother Harmon, the next country deeper into Africa is the country of Rwanda. I have an uncle who works in the office of the president in that country. Can I go for it? And I said, Stephen, give me a break. We just got the registration for Uganda. Stephen, by the authority of the Board of General Superintendents, I'm hereby empowered to tell you that as of right now, you have been appointed the first ever national superintendent for the country of Uganda. Go for it, Stephen. Go for it. And when you get the churches planted and they're self-supporting and there's pastors in the pulpit, come and hunt for me and we'll go into Rwanda. And after Rwanda, we'll go into Burundi. And after Burundi, we'll go into Zaire, Congo. And then we'll turn south into Tanzania in the shadows of Kilimanjaro. And then north again into the edges of Sudan and way up into Ethiopia and over into Eritrea and down into uh, 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 Somalia until Jesus comes someday, Stephen, until the day when Jesus comes. We almost did it. Took Stephen four years. 48 churches. Pastors self-supporting. He was knocking on my door. I said, Stephen, did you know, incidentally, that all angels are not white? I've known a lot of them in Africa. Tattered old coats, worn out collars, shoes that are broken down, you can see bare toes. I've never noticed those things. I've always been too aware 
of the rustling of wings as we walked on the trails. I said, Stephen, I chose the last country. You choose the next. He said, missionary, where I'm going, you won't be able to come. I said, Stephen, don't talk to me like that. Are you thinking Sudan? You know that I can't follow you there. There's open war in the southern part of Sudan right now. As a white man, I would be conspicuous. As a missionary, I would be taken hostage and executed. If they discovered I was American, I would be held hostage against my government. I can't follow. He said, I know those things, missionary, but I am black and I can disappear into the woodwork. I said, Stephen, if you feel like the Lord wants to have you go into southern Sudan, then Beverly and I will take Ethiopia alongside of it. And I'll tell you what, we'll keep working our way north, eventually up into Eritrea and up into the edge of Sudan and, Ethiopia and Egypt. And then we'll cross the Red Sea. And if you're really pushing, Stephen, you might catch up to us before we cross the Red Sea. I watched him as he turned, his old broken down shoes puffing the dust, headed through the banana plantations north on foot to enter the country of Sudan. I told Beverly, I said, you better pack. That guy is going to be right behind us. We flew out of Nairobi. We had been there nine years. We flew out of Nairobi into Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia. A 31-year war had just ended. The Russians were gone. The Cubans had gone with them. It was just Ethiopia, and they were bankrupt. A million soldiers with live ammunition in their guns, the largest land army in Africa, was on the streets with no pay. That first morning in Ethiopia, I walked out onto the street to see where the Lord would take me. And instantly, I was packed by beggars, starving to death. I struggled to stay on my feet, my back against a wall on the sidewalk. I heard a voice in English say to me, Sir, do you need help? I looked up and there was a well-dressed Ethiopian gentleman with a light tan suit and hat and a matching briefcase. And I said, please. He said something in the ancient Amharic language of Ethiopia. And the beggars disappeared like the mist before the rising sun. I was shaken. He took me by the arm. He said, come back to my home. It's just four or five houses down here. I need to talk to you. We walked down the sidewalk and at a gateway in a wall, he knocked and the door opened and we walked into a little tiny backyard of tranquility. There was a wrought iron table under a tree and two chairs. We sat down and the lady of the house appeared in the kitchen door. 
He said something to her, and in a few minutes she was back with a tray and two tiny little white porcelain cups and a brass coffee pot that had no handle to it, made that way. She poured from 18 inches high, she poured the coffee into those little cups and never missed or, or lost a drop. Then put two spoonfuls of sugar in each cup. I started to protest that I didn't use sugar. I was later glad I didn't say anything. The coffee was as strong as you have ever seen. We drank the two ceremonial cups of coffee before we started to visit. He looked up at me and he said, Sir, it has been three months since I have seen a Caucasian face on the streets of Addis Ababa. Ever since the Russians left, what is it that brings you into our country at this dangerous time? And I said, Sir, I am an ambassador for the king. I represent the mission organization. I'm here to seek ways in which we can help you with the reconstruction of your country and your people, both physically and spiritually. He sat there silent for a moment, and then I saw a tear in the corner of his eye. He lowered his voice and he said, Sir, my name is Shefarah. I am Dr. Shefarah, the current Minister of Justice for the country of Ethiopia. I have not yet been replaced by the new government. I've been wondering what I was going to be doing these next few days. The Lord has just answered me. Christ Jesus is king in my heart. And I am going to do everything in my power to help you gain a registration in the country of Ethiopia. It will not be easy. Only 13 organizations have been officially and legally registered. There's no straight line between any two points, but we're going to give it a try. We stood up, and he escorted me back to where we were staying. A week later, I was at his house with my wife for a meal. At that point, we realized that we were spending six days of the week hunting for enough food to live on. No free enterprise at all. No selling in an open market. Totally un... Marxism had been imposed heavily across 30 years. We sat down on cushions on the floor, a coffee table in front of us. It was a feast because there were two hard-boiled eggs looking at me from the table. And I knew which one I was going to reach for. There was a soft knock at the door. Dr. Shifra opened it, and in walked an Ethiopian lady dressed in the long, white, hand-woven linens of Ethiopia with the big stylized green and red and yellow crosses on it. She turned, and Dr. Shifra said, Reverend Harmon, I'd like you to meet Dr. Adanich. She is the current Minister of Health in the country of Ethiopia. And Dr. Adenich took my hand and shook it, and she said, I want you to know Christ Jesus reigns in my heart. And I'm here 
as support to Dr. Adonai, uh, Dr. Shefferoff, that we will do everything in our power at the highest levels of government to gain a registration for you. I reached the Director of Compassionate Ministries in the mission organization in Bombay, India by telephone, Steve Weber. He was busy getting ready to fly back to the States. I had him reroute him, his flight to, to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Dr. Adanich gave us a Cook's guided tour of the Black Lion Hospital, 2,800 beds. One difference, not one single bed, not one mattress, not one blanket, not one light bulb, not one end table, no medicine, no instruments. With the retreat of their European sponsors, everything had gone. At the airport, in the presence of Dr. Shefferah and Dr. Adanich and Steve Weber, I turned to Dr. Adanich and I said, if you had a wish list and money was no object, where would you start? She said, we have the technicians. We've got many Ethiopians that are highly trained. We have no equipment at all. There is not a single x-ray machine in the entire Horn of Africa. Start with something simple, an x-ray machine, a CAT scan. Not an MRI, but a CAT scan. I turned to Steve Weber and I said, in a few days you'll be preaching in churches from one side of America to the other. You tell those wonderful people, that legion of angels over there, that we need a CAT scan in Ethiopia. Three weeks later, my telephone rang in Ethiopia, and on the other end of the line was Steve Weber in Kansas City. Harmon, Hamilton, Ontario. They're upgrading to MRI all the way through. There's a General Electric 8800 CAT scan, just been refurbished, all the peripherals to go with it. It's available. I said, Steve, how much? He said, $1.8 million. I said, Steve, for a friend, how much? <laughs> he said, Harmon, I think I can get it for about $85,000. I said, grab it for me. He said, wait a minute. I'm here at headquarters. I've got your budget right here in front of me. You're getting $4,000 a year to operate the work in Ethiopia and up there in the Horn of Africa. How long do you think we're going to sit and wait for you to repay us for this $85,000 mission? I hung up on him. He had his problems. I had mine. <laughs> Hamilton, Ontario. The crates started to be built. General Electric donated the time and the salary and the transport and the keep for two full-time technicians, and it took them six months to tear down that big equipment and pack it into crate after crate after crate. There were about 12 or 15 enormous crates. All the equipment carefully packed so as not to disturb the settings on everything. They trucked it all the way across the United States and Canada 
to Tacoma, Washington, to Boeing Field, Lufthansa had a brand new Boeing 747 that they were going to take delivery of. And the night before we were going to load this, they, the CEO of Lufthansa had donated the cargo space. The night before we were to load it, a client stepped in and purchased the entire loading space of that Boeing. And the CEO was on the phone to Steve Weber and he said, we've got a German airway transport down in Los Angeles. I've asked for him to be diverted to Tacoma, Washington. We promise you we'll load it into that plane. I was on the telephone the next day when the man out on the tarmac said they're taxiing out on the runway. They're gonna take off from Tacoma in a few minutes, Brother Harmon. It's loaded and it's paid for. I was on the telephone nine hours later when it touched down in Frankfurt, Germany. And a German on the other end of the line said, my brother Haman, they are loading it now into an Air Ethiopia flight. It will be touching down in Addis Ababa tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. Seven o'clock tomorrow morning. Dr. Adenich, Dr. Shifra, Beverly and I were at the airport. We watched the plane come taxiing down the row of hangars. It stopped at hangar number 12. We went through all the security and we stood there as they rolled those huge crates down. By the next day, there were white tablecloths on the tables under the jacaranda trees at the Ross Des Hospital. An entire wing had been built in the interim I found leaded glass for them. Did you know they had such a thing? Leaded glass so you could look into the x-ray room while things were happening. I found that in Israel of all places. Flew it, flew it to Ethiopia. I found a generator to stand by on the electricity if it should fail. I got that in France. It flew it to Ethiopia. From South Africa, we got the cables for the x-ray equipment. We built trenches in the floors of the rooms where everything was ready and everybody who had a white coat was at the celebration. There was bunting on all of the flag posts from the airport to the Rostis Hospital downtown. At a slow five mile an hour, this enormous convoy crept down through the city. There were speeches, there were gifts. I have a beautiful hand-carved icon from the Coptic Church of Ethiopia, carved in the 14th century as a result of that day. And then suddenly somebody announced that the machinery was ready for them to take a look. Somebody's kidney was on a television screen in there and everybody dressed in white took off to go take a look. And I turned to Beverly and I said, I've still got one thing that I've got to do. Come with me. The two of us left the banquet and we walked out onto the sidewalk, walked down to the United Nations building, up the steps, the sign at the end of the hallway read WHO. World Health Organization knocked on the door 
an African called back, yes, come in, come in. I opened the door and I recognized the man behind the desk. Not personally, I recognized his tribal scars. He was an Nguni. He came from somewhere 4,000 miles to the south out of the Zambezi River Basin. I grew up among the Ngunis. They were my first language. I took a chance and called a greeting in my mother tongue at him. The man came apart at the seams. He was around his desk. He came flying up to me and threw his arms around me. My brother, he shouted, what are you doing in this distant part of the world? I said, I'm here trying to get work started for the mission. He stood there a minute. He said, you know, my last posting was Swaziland. I spent four years there. The Minister of Health was a second generation missionary with your mission outfit. I know him well. I know the doctors and nurses. If there's anything I can do to help you while you're here, my brother, you just let me know. I said, there is a small matter. I pulled out a little proposal, one paragraph, handed it to him. He read it twice. He said, $86,000 for a million and a half dollar piece of equipment. And it will save the Ethiopian government $10,000 in American hard currency per month where they're sending people out of the country for medical help. Sounds like the bargain of a lifetime for me. He sat down, took out his pen and signed the appropriation, turned and pulled his telex machine over to him. He said, who do we make the check out to? I said, make it out to the mission care of Steve Weber, Kansas City, Missouri. He started to type. He stopped only once. A little green light came on. Oh, he said, Zurich is up. They've just approved the requisition. Tomorrow morning when this Steve Weber you're talking about gets to his office, the telex will have the transfer of the funds on his desk. My phone rang. It was the Divisional Director of World Mission Worldwide, Brother Harmon. We were wondering if you would consider becoming missionary at large. We need you to travel in conventions. All of Eastern Europe is open. Three million people need the gospel there. We need you in Australia, New Zealand, South America. Bring a report. I turned, put my hand over the mouthpiece, and I said to Beverly, Stephen isn't going to catch up. We're going to cross the Red Sea. The whole world is our mission field. I stood on the street corner waiting to go get my passport stamped. I felt something touch my leg. I looked down and it was a little tiny Ethiopian girl 
dressed in just a rag. Long, soft black curls, huge eyes, the color of ancient amber. She was begging. She had her hand up. From 20 feet away, her mother stood watching. A living skeleton, dressed in burlap that barely gave her modesty. I saw her cheekbones as she started to speak. She said, take her. I can't help her. My generation has failed. All over the world, there's a new millennium, a new century, open doors as never before. Risks, sure there are risks. Paul faced them. Every one of the disciples did. But there's a generation with their hands raised, give us hope, give us help. Tell us his name. What was his name? His name was Jesus. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Thank you.